Hi, and welcome to AGM Watch, brought to you by the Australian Shareholders Association. Coming up on the 27th of October 2021 is the Blackmores AGM, ASX code BKL. Our company monitors are Julianne Mills and Karen Hickman, and we're speaking with Julianne today. Hello, Julianne. Hi, Phil. There's so much to talk about with this one, isn't there? Yes, it's, um, it's an interesting company, especially at the moment. So, George Tambassus, what's his story? Why is Marcus Blackmore so interested and keen in having him there? Uh, that's an interesting question. George has actually self-nominated for a position on the board, and he's done that with the support of Marcus Blackmore. It's not a usual scenario. Normally, you know, a major shareholder would take a different role. They'd, they basically would try and get a nominee director on board. But in this case, he's decided that he doesn't want to do that. And I'm not really sure why he's done that. So let's have a talk about the pre-AGM meeting. How was that? And um, who was it you were actually speaking with there? Okay, so we actually have had a number of meetings. Initially, it was with Anne Templeman-Jones, the chairman, and David Ansel, another non-executive director. We've since then also spoken to um, Wendy Stops and we've also spoken to Marcus and we've spoken to George and we've spoken to the CEO, Alastair Symington. And we've tried to give a sort of balanced view. We went in there with an open mind. We went in there with a, a concern around the culture of the company and the fact that it looked like it was going in a direction that possibly wasn't in the best interests of the company. So the decision that we've made around voting against Marcus's recommendation wasn't an easy one to make, but in the end it was a decision that we made because we thought that if Marcus really had wanted to have representation on the board, then there is a way that he can do that and he can do that by nominating a director and having a nominee director on the board. He's chosen not to do that and he's chosen not to do that suggesting to us that it was about George being independent. However, the independence of George is really questionable given that he's being promoted by Marcus and Marcus is really the one that's supporting him to get on the board. I think without that, he wouldn't be there. He has been interviewed twice by the board and we interviewed a number of directors and asked them specifically why they didn't want him on the board and they gave us reasons that we felt were reasonable. And I think, you know, it's very difficult to have a board member on a board that has been rejected twice in interviews. It would be very uncomfortable at meetings. (laughs) I would have thought so. I mean, I think the whole thing around governance is that, you know, a board needs to be able to work collaboratively together and they need to be able to support the CEO. To me, this situation with Marcus is designed to blow the board up and I don't think that's in the best interests of shareholders. So that's the reason why we have decided to vote against George, but it's only one of the reasons. The other reason is we actually don't think that he has the appropriate skills. I mean, I can see why Marcus wants him on board and I think his relationship with pharmacies across Australia very strong. His experience with complementary medicine, very strong. But he doesn't have the, the C-suite or the large corporate organisation. And I think the position that 
Blackmores is in at the moment is it's in an expansion mode and it needs to shift from its small-scale sort of family business old-style governance to a contemporary governance structure to be able to make that transition. Most people would have a pretty good idea about what Blackmores does, but less well-known is its vertical integration with Brayside. They're now manufacturing all of their own goods, aren't they? Can you tell us about that? In 2018, Blackmores purchased the Brayside factory, and prior to that, they weren't a manufacturing company at all. They were a marketing company, so they had a lot of their product supplied, and it was supplied from all over the world. Now that they have their own production facilities, they've basically been able to vertically integrate the company, which has produced a lot of savings and significant rationalisation. So they've simplified their products down. They've nearly halved their products. They're simplifying their supply chain. They've done a lot of research into their supply chain and around their sustainability in that area. But also it means that they've got more control over what gets produced at whatever time. And that has its own efficiencies. So if they need more vitamin C product or they can see a projection of one particular product that they're going to need in six months' time, they can therefore plan that into their production run and not have to rely on somebody else to be able to produce that and their own supply runs. You mentioned also about um, regulatory situation. So in the past, they would have been importing ingredients for their products and there would have been separate um, regulatory requirements for those. Is that the case? Yes, and also already there's enough regulation in the process. And this is coming from the CEO, that simplification of the business down to less products and less ingredients, which is part of why they sold off global therapies. It's really to simplify the regulation around that and the issues that have evolved in that process. And that transition you're referring to, we're talking about they're aiming to, by 2025, I believe, achieve a billion consumers. That's a pretty tall order. That is. And, you know, I I hope they can achieve that. I mean, and it's a short period of time away too. It is, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Not a long, long time frame. It's an interesting idea. I think another reason why we want to support the board is we just feel like they're two years into a three-year transformation. And it's really unfair to sort of come in here and try and blow it up after that period of time. It's the first time that they've had a real board. You know, they've had two directors resign in 2019 and they had um, Brent Wallace resign and there was another resignation as well. So, you know, this is the first time that they've actually got a full complement and it's a significant complement. You know, they've got very highly skilled directors and that's only because they got Anne Templeman-Jones in place because those sort of directors just don't go on boards unless they have strong leadership to start with. So, you know, we support the board in that regard because we think that it just needs an opportunity to run its full course. So I question the timing of Marcus and this appointment. This intervention? This intervention, yes. It's very unusual. It's heating up every day. There's phone calls and letters and is there a lot of influence peddling here? I mean, are they trying to um, get proxies behind each of those positions? And I guess you're part of this as well? Yes, that's right. Well, 
That's right. Marcus is lobbying for people's proxies and um, he would have a fair amount of sway because that's the nature of the man and the company. I mean, it, it really is a company that has a very good culture and has been developed around some very principled ideals, especially the way that it treats its employees. Because it's a very family-oriented company, isn't it? Yes. What are some examples of that that you've seen? Profit share, for example. Its profit share is, you know, it's given out to all its employees. And I think that's 10% of its EBIT. It's shared out with employees. It's shared out with all employees. That's pretty significant, isn't it? It's pretty significant, yeah. I think the other thing is, you know, it comes back to the idea of complementary medicine and the principles around that. So on that level, you can understand, I can understand why there's a little bit of an issue with Marcus. He's finding it a bit difficult, is he? <laughs> well, I don't know what it is. I can't exactly tell you, but it's hard to tell because on the one hand, he supports the CEO, he supports the strategy. He says he doesn't want to be involved on a um, daily basis and he doesn't want to be a director, but on the other hand, he's supporting this transition to a big corporate monster, which it could possibly be, or corporate identity. So, His actions are speaking louder than his words, huh? That's right. Yeah. So you're very happy with the composition of the board at the moment, I believe. I think it's very well balanced, actually. You know, it's got the right level of expertise across a broad range of skills. And the addition of the last two directors, Erica Mann and Stephen Roche, have added a whole additional level of um, expertise that was really necessary to add, mainly in health. Stephen has a background as CEO of API, Australian Pharmaceutical Industries, and he was there for 11 years, so he's got that experience in an Australian environment with pharmaceuticals. And Erica Mann was president and the head of Bayer Global Consumer Health. She's got a lot of experience across a range of non-prescription medicine, dietary supplements, infant food manufacturing. She's got experience in the regulatory area as well as bioscience and nutritional health. So I think that level of complexity of understanding the importance of regulation, the importance of a compliance and multi-channel environments. So that's something that the CEO is really focusing on, sort of development into e-commerce and global sales as well. Yeah. Let's just go back to the strategy of having a billion customers, which is, you know, let's face it, what is it, about one-eighth of the people on the planet? That's a pretty high sort of goal. A lot of this is to do with its uh, push into China and reacting to the way Blackmore's goods were sold into China previously. Can you tell us a bit about that, please? Yes. Yeah, so what happened with the China scenario is that the Daegao trade basically was regulated by China. Basically, that was the beginning of Blackmore's problems because in the first place, a lot of their sales growth, especially in Australia, was Chinese students and tourists buying Blackmore's products and then shipping them back to China and making a profit on that. So when that dried up, that was sort of the beginning of the financial problems for Blackmores. And Alistair's come in and has a, a different approach to it. So he's taken it right back to basics. He's developed a um, Shanghai research centre and they've basically designed a whole 
product range around women's health and the modern woman in China. You know, they premiumized the product there and made that the attraction. So are they actually manufacturing in China or are they exporting goods made here to China in that scenario? No, they're exporting. So nothing is made in China. There are some raw materials that are imported from China, but I think the Chinese market relies on that trust and that branding around Blackmores. Yeah, it is one of those companies that you can trust because people do have that confidence that they're well-made products with good ingredients. Mm. Yes, and I think Brayside Manufacturing has actually made that even more sustainable because they have much more control over the production of their products. So how are the financial results this year? They're pretty good. Considering what we've just been through. I think that's absolutely right. You've got to keep in mind that it's in the middle of COVID, that this is a full year of COVID, and yet they've improved on last year's results, which were pretty bad. But, you know, the fact that they have been able to improve on that is is a really good indicator of where they can go from now. It's early days, but I certainly think that it's heading in the right direction and that's the positive side of it. So what are some of those specific numbers there in these results? Okay, so they've had revenue of $575 million this year, which was up 3% on last year. Um, international revenue has risen 27% to $163 million, and China revenue has grown by 28% to $131 million. So the interesting thing about this is that international China are actually beginning to outpace Australia. And that's a really interesting projection for the company because with that growth, and a lot of that growth is e-commerce growth, I think the company can potentially reach that billion customers. Certainly won't do it in an Australian market. The Australian market is flat and that's something that they recognise and are trying to, to shift. So I was reading in the VIs as well, there's other countries. Is it Thailand and Indonesia as well that they sell to? Thailand and Indonesia are the main yeah. other international, but they also they distribute out of Singapore, Malaysia. They've just started um, sending their first shipment to India, which will be really interesting. And the big advantage of the Brayside factory is that it has halal certification that went through this year, which means that that will allow the production of halal products that can go to Indonesia and Malaysia and a whole new market that they haven't been able to tap into in the past. So that's a real positive. So another one of their business successes seems to be implementation of a digital strategy. Can you tell us about that? Yes, they've really been very proactive in that area. In March, they launched a personalised naturopath online. This is one of their strategies for Australia. It's called Be More, and it basically produces a vitamin service that gets delivered to your door. Their digital education is now 100% online, so that's going across 27,000 pharmacies in Australia, Malaysia, Thailand. In simplifying their business, they've actually done that by digitising a lot of their production. And then, of course, there's a cross-border e-commerce, which is a means of getting their product into China. So they don't have retail outlets and they don't have suppliers as such. They have partnerships with e-commerce platforms and that gives them the ability to tap into China without having to deal with some of the other regulatory issues around that. And that's been incredibly successful. 27% of their sales are now online. And the aim is to get 
to 40% by 2024, which I think is a big part of that 1 billion customers platform. So let's talk specifically about the voting intentions. And um, I think it's pretty clear from previous in this interview what those voting intentions are, but the thrust of the VIs is to support the current board. Is that what it comes down to? I think it'll be a very difficult decision for a lot of shareholders because I think there'll be a loyalty towards Marcus. But I do think that in the end, broadly speaking, it is in the best interest of the shareholders to actually vote for the existing board. And if Marcus really wanted a nominee director, then I think absolutely he should have one on the board without question. But taking this approach to this process just makes me ask the question, why is he not doing that? Because it feels to me like he is deliberately trying to blow up the board and, and that's not a good thing for the company in the long run or in the short run. Julianne Mills, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Phil. 